I uh, typically have some sort of clock in the back that I can look at, and I really rely on that. Uh, if it were not for that, I would preach for two hours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry about that. I, so I looked to my brother-in-law who came with me on this trip to Iowa, and I said, okay, can you make your uh, special watch or whatever just a normal watch? And he said, yes. So no need. Uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me here this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, uh, I, I think there's extra ones in the back uh, for you. And no, no shame. I used to not bring uh, my Bible to church gatherings because I really want to hear um, just the words of, of Scripture spoken. Um, but I think this will be easier a sermon to follow along with if, if you have a, a copy of the Bible right in front of you. So... Yeah, I met Aaron about, about five years ago. My brother, uh, Matt Ray, uh, Matthew, uh, works here in Waverly. He went to college here. Then my sister went to college here. And uh, my brother's famous. You know, he's on the radio. So I always, I always tell people that. Uh, but uh, so when I would visit my brother and sister here, um, I, I saw the need in Waverly for a, a church plant. And it's very difficult. I moved up to Minneapolis, Minnesota um, when I was 18 years old to be a part of church planting up there. But it's very difficult when you feel called to something, like I feel called to start new churches um, in Minneapolis. But then you see a need somewhere else. It's very difficult to just be patient and ask God um, to work. Um, and that's what I did. I, I, I prayed uh, that there would be a new church in Waverly, and then I met Aaron at uh, Duos about five years ago, and I'm very, very thankful uh, for your pastor. So this morning, he's uh, with the kids right now, volunteering over there. Like, that's not, you don't have a normal pastor here. You have, I meant that as a compliment. Uh, you, you have a man who, who wants to serve you, and I haven't been here for a little over three years um, but two things I know about Aaron, right? Aaron loves his family, and Aaron loves Riverwood Church. When I say he loves this church, I don't mean he loves the entity, the 501c3. I mean he loves you people. It's very evident every time uh, I talk with Aaron or any time I email him. Um, he loves you people, and he loves serving you. And so appreciate your pastor. And you might think, well, I, I'm sure he feels appreciated. Well, just wouldn't hurt to... Just be encouraging and more encouraging than you need to be. So this sounds like Aaron asked me to say these things. He didn't. Uh, but I just really like Aaron. So, yeah. Uh, let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, I'm so weak, but you are strong. My words can do nothing without your spirit. So I ask that your spirit would work in the hearts of everyone here as I open up your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was 18 years old. I moved to Minneapolis uh, to help start new churches there. And three years ago, my wife and I um, moved to North Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, North Minneapolis is uh, pretty much the most looked down part of town. Uh, compared to places, other big cities, it looks like a suburb. Um, but that's where um, there's a lot of poverty, a, a lot of fatherlessness, uh, violence, gang activity, things like that in North Minneapolis. And when we see that, 
my wife and I believe that Jesus is the hope of North Minneapolis. Jesus is the hope of North Minneapolis. And that isn't like some sentimental Christian hallmark phrase. We believe that when Jesus says he's the hope of the world, that the way he is the hope of the world is to put his body, which is his church, in every square inch of the world. So what my wife and I are passionate about is seeing new churches starting right in in our neighborhood uh, of North Minneapolis. And when people hear that I'm a church planter, especially a church planter um, in a lower-income neighborhood, sometimes they think I'm sort of this on the spiritual high all the time. And I understand why they feel this way. Because oftentimes when I looked at uh, foreign missionaries, I would think, wow, those people are in a really dangerous place that doesn't have the gospel there yet, and they must just be these spiritual giants. And then uh, an extremely close friend of mine became a missionary in a place, I won't even say his name, I won't even say where he is, because that's how dangerous um, it is for him to be a missionary there. And when my extremely close friend became a missionary in a very difficult place, I realized that missionaries are not spiritual giants. You find that out when your friend from high school becomes a missionary. I know his struggles. I know his doubts. I know that he's a weak man who wants God to work through him. So speaking of struggles and doubts, uh, today I'm preaching on the discipline of prayer. And if you would have told me a year ago I was preaching on the discipline of prayer and that I actually volunteered to preach on the discipline of prayer, I would have laughed at you. And the reason for that is my prayer life was incredibly inconsistent. Then around uh, six months ago, I went to a conference, and if you've ever been to a church planning conference, they're very boring. Um, And I sat in on a session with a friend. I thought, I don't even know where I go go anymore. I'll just sit anywhere. So my friend went to this breakout session on prayer by a guy named Donald Whitney, who's a teacher at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. And that very boring session became super helpful. And what I've learned from Donald Whitney has given new, fresh language and engaging experiences to my disciplined um, time of prayer. And when I talk about the disciplined time of prayer, I'll check it every once in a while, don't worry. When I talk about the disciplined time of prayer, I don't mean praying at random times, right? It's a good thing to pray at random times of the day. But when I talk about the discipline of prayer, I'm referring to committing to a time and praying consistently at that time. So maybe you say, I'm going to pray every morning, and then you pray in the mornings. Maybe you say, I'm going to pray morning, evening, night, morning, afternoon, night, and then you, and you follow through and do it. And I have tried that many, 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 many times in my life and have failed. I'd say, okay, I'm going to pray in the morning. Shoot. I didn't do that. Okay, I'll pray in the evening. Didn't do it. Do you want me to give money? Do you want me to show hospitality? Do you want me to uh, uh, teach? I'll do any of that. Just don't make me have those prayer times. 
all of those are easier for me than just to pray. And we're not talking about the story 10 years ago. I'm saying six months ago. Earlier this week, I reflected on my failure to pray. So what were the reasons that I avoided and still am am tempted and sometimes give in on the temptation to avoid prayer? And there are three reasons that I have historically avoided prayer. The first is shame. The second is it's boring. And the third is that I didn't realize how much I needed prayer. So open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans is in the New Testament. It's right after the book of Acts and right before the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 8 is the big number 8. So I'm preaching on the topic of the discipline of prayer. But instead of skipping around and seeing prayer in a bunch of places, I want us to focus on Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 is not a prayer manual. Um, It is, though, one of the best places to show us who we are in Christ and who God is making us through the Holy Spirit. The first reason I've struggled to pray is I've experienced chronic shame. By chronic shame, I mean an almost daily experience of, I need to hide from God. Like, I, I bet God is so disappointed in me. So on the days that I feel like I'm doing well at a Christian, uh, at, on the days I feel like I'm doing well being a Christian, I can pray. And on the rare times where I am, yeah, so I can pray. But when I, when I feel like I've just messed up, right, I feel so ashamed, I think God would not want to hear from me. Now, you might think you're being too hard on yourself. But in reality, I was underestimating the power of sin in my life. I was underestimating the human problem. So since the fall of humankind, the human problem, and listen to this, is not that we sin. The human problem is not that we sin. The human problem is that we are sin. The human problem is not that we do sin. The human problem is that we are sin. In the beginning, God created the earth to reflect his glory. And then he, he created human beings who would truly bear his image, who would truly reflect his glory, and they would have dominion over the earth, and they'd have perfect communion with God, perfect relationship with one another, and perfect, a perfect care and a perfect love for the creation. But then what happened? Humans decided that they did not want to be ruled over by God. They wanted to to rule the world how they wanted to rule the world. Humans decided that they they didn't want God to call the shots. Instead, they wanted to be autonomous moral agents. I, I I don't want to follow God. Let's do things our own way. And ever since then, the problem of sin has been passed along. And the problem is not that people sin. The problem is that people are sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul tells Christians, both Jews and Gentiles who have come under Christ, he tells Christians that before God saved them, they were by nature children of wrath. 
Maybe Paul is just grumpy, as he sometimes is. But Jesus cuts through all the niceties. Straight up says in Matthew chapter 7, 11, you are evil. And he's talking to religious people. In the context, he's talking about how you give good gifts to your children and you're evil. How much more will a good God give to his children? I'm not going to preach on Matthew chapter 7, 11, but let's just know. Jesus says, you're evil. Our problem isn't that we do bad things, but that we are by nature sinful. That we are by nature children of wrath. We, according to Jesus Christ, are evil. And if our problem is that big, how can we even think about praying? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How is that possible? How is it possible that there would be no condemnation for sinners? Verse 3 shows us. For God has done what the law, all the rules, all the, the ways to culturally identify ourselves, for law, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, weakened by our sin, could not do. God didn't say, man, those people are really acting up. Let's, let's send them some rules. Well, that, that didn't change the problem. The problem is much deeper than that. So here's what he did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's what God did. We could not solve the problem. We could not act better. Because as sinners, even the good things we do are done for the wrong reasons. We could not act better. Don't lose focus here. A lot of times when people hear the bad news, they give up too quickly and they miss the good news. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is the feeling of shame, the feeling of guilt, the feeling that, yes, I've done something wrong, something's off. That is a good feeling. It's not a good feeling, but it's, it's like, oh, it burns when the oven's hot. That shows us something's wrong. I'm not going to lie about the bad news because the good news is so precious. God has done what all of your self-help uh, books, what all of your life hack websites, what all of uh, your attempts at moral obedience could not do by sending his son. God is one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Son came in the likeness of flesh. The Word of God became, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he died on the cross for our sins. He died on the cross so that every bad thing I've ever done and every good thing I've ever done with bad intentions could be forgiven. And now I have his life. I have his righteousness. 
through the blood of Jesus Christ, through him paying the punishment for our sins, we are united to him. We are united to the Father. And by the Spirit, he's making us new. Look look what the Spirit's doing in us, in us and then who we are without the Spirit. Uh, so I'll go back to verse 3. For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, nor that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm realizing, thanks for the clock, I'm realizing that I need, need to go faster. Um, but basically, verses 4 through 8 show who we are without the Spirit. Let's go to verse 9, little number 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the Bible is the best book ever written. But it's still a book. So how would you read a book? Well, what's this trying to say? Let's look. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What does that mean? Well, that means that anyone who does have the Spirit of Christ does belong to him. You belong to God. You belong to God. You have intimacy. You can know your creator because of what God did by putting on sinful, uh, by putting on the likeness of sinful flesh, though he had no sin, by putting on flesh and dwelling among us and dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the grave. You can know God. You are God's. You belong to the one who knows every sin. If you're discouraged by your sin this morning, you know about 2% of your sins. If I knew all of my sin, I don't know how I could live. God knows all of the sin that none of you know. He even knows all of the sin that I don't even know in myself. I don't even see in myself. And the one who sees all of my sin is the one who I belong to and who loves me. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of, this, because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You belong to the one who created the world. You belong to the one who came to say, I'm going to give them back the life they had in the beginning. I came, Jesus said, so that they might have life and have it abundantly. God came so that you would have abundant life in him, so that you would have a life that's full of knowing your God. Even through suffering, you would know God. 
You have life because of his righteousness, which is his perfect faithfulness. Through the Son's work and the Spirit's power, you have true and abundant life. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means like daddy, papa, whatever you use as an affectionate term. For your father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might, may also be glorified with Him. So, verse 12 says, We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You do not owe sin anything. Some of you think you're still sinners. You think you're. Your identity is wrapped up in your sin. Well, this is, just, this is just what I have to do. I mean, this is who I am. You don't owe sin anything. You belong to God. Verse uh, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, In February of 2017, a little girl moved into my wife and I's house, 11 months old, and and she has changed our life. So our friends were her foster parents, and about when she was about six months old, uh, they knew that we were becoming foster parents and hoping to adopt. And they said, "Would would you consider being her foster parents and uh, maybe even adopting her if there's a need. And I thought, well, I don't know. And then I went with my wife to babysit her and held her for about 10 seconds and thought, yes. <laughs> wasn't a very hard decision um, once I did that. And I don't have to explain it to you with babies, which I hear a lot of. I love being a dad. It's wonderful. Someday, I will die, and my daughter will have my stuff. She is an heir. This says you are co-heirs with Christ. That's adoption, okay? So I'm not trying to be too critical, but you did not adopt your dog, okay? (laughs) It's great if you rescued your dog. All right, we have a dog that we got from some rescue thing. He's we like him okay, you know. But he, I did not adopt him. Right when I die, Rue is not getting my stuff. Adeline is getting my stuff. She is my heir. You are God's child. You know, before I met Adeline, I, I could have. You know, seen her, that oh, that's a baby. <laughs> but now she's my baby. She belongs to me. I actually find other children less cute now that I'm a dad. I love her. I can't explain it. 
This is how God feels about you. And if children, then heirs. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Some of you are so scared. You're scared of what other people think about you. Even more, you're scared of what you think about you. I am way more critical of me than I am of other people. And you're scared of what God thinks about you. But you didn't receive the the spirit of slavery. You received the Holy Spirit, who's God himself dwelling in you. And the Holy Spirit works in you so that you can cry, Daddy, Father. Love what Tim Keller says. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. His servants don't go into him, uh, don't, don't go into his room. King? No. But what if it's Daddy? I'm thirsty. Tim Keller says, We have that kind of access. You didn't receive the, the spirit of, Oh man, I'm really worried what God thinks about me. You receive the spirit of adoption, which marks you. You are God's. You belong to him. Now when she's in a timeout, uh, we put her on the stairs, and we leave her there about, for about two minutes. Um, but before she was old enough to do that, um, we would sit, and I'm not going to get down uh, across lakes here, but we would sit in a corner, put her on our lap, and just kind of take her arms and, and go like this. And, and she hated it, and it was kind of funny. But one time, she had thrown food at the dog or something like that, and she was crying, and she was very upset and angry at me. And, 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 and I was holding her like this. She's on my lap, and I kissed her head. I thought, huh, that's weird. I just do that now. I wasn't thinking, well, I should kiss her head. I just did. And I did because that's just what I do. That's the natural inclination from my heart. My natural inclination toward my daughter is one of affection. This is not a modern, sentimental way of thinking about God. It was Jesus who taught us to pray our father. They said, disciples said, Rabbi, how should we pray? And Jesus said, start out like this. Our father. This is not modern. This is not sentimental. Jesus taught us to pray our father. God is our father. And the natural inclination of a father toward his children is one of affection. And God loves our prayers. He loves when it's 3 a.m. and thirsty. You don't have to feel shame. Uh, Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So you might be thinking, if God 
is doing all this work in me, if the Holy Spirit's working, if I have this relationship with God, why do I find prayer so boring? I went to hear Donald Whitney talk, and he has so helped me. So I'm going to quote extensively from him. If you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is certainly not you. Now, it is you if there's some sin issue in your life. You're not facing it. You're not confessing it. You're just going with it. You say, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm really not going to give up this sin. Maybe it could be you. you know? He says, then the problem is you. But assuming you're generally, sincerely trying to follow Christ, not perfectly, for no one does, but you wish you were perfectly, the problem in prayer is almost certainly not you, but rather your method. The method of most Christians is to say the same old things about the same old things. Our problem in prayer, he says, is we say the same old things about the same old things. Now, our problem is not, he says, that we pray about the same old things. If I were to say, okay, I want everyone to take a minute, pray. You would probably pray about your family, your future, your finance, work or school, church or ministry, or current crisis. Basically, something's going on right now that you don't need to write down. Or you don't need to remember to pray. Every time you pray, you're praying about that. Those aren't bad things. Your problem is not that you pray about the same old things. Should I not pray for my wife every day? Of course I should. No, our problem in prayer is we say the same old things about the same old things. And it is so boring. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to commit to a disciplined prayer now. Okay, so I'm going to go down five minutes every morning. Okay. God bless my wife. Okay, Lord. Okay, help, help me. Uh, okay, help, help. Bless Adeline. Okay. All right. Uh, bless the church plant. And I am so bored even pretending to pray like that. Now listen, verse 26 says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But then the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God, this is what I love. My prayers, my boring prayers, they're not wasted. God, help me. And the Spirit you know, takes them to the Father and he says, okay, he says, help me, help me, you know. He doesn't really, need, he doesn't really know this, but here's what he needs. Here's what he needs right now. He perfects our boring prayers. But what if there was a method that, that was more engaging? And since using this uh, method that I've learned from Don Whitney, I now have fresh language and engaging experiences with prayer. I actually look forward to my prayer times in the morning. And there, there are plenty of times where I don't look forward to my prayer times, but typically I am engaged shortly into my prayer times. When he shared how to pray, I realized that it's not only so simple that every Christian, almost every Christian could do it, it's also been the way that God's people have prayed for thousands of years. It is not only simple, but it's also a historical method. All right? Here's the prayer method I learned from Donald Whitney, and this is going to blow your mind. When you pray, pray through a passage of Scripture, particularly a psalm. I did not hear any gasp. I want to show you how I do this. Uh, go to Psalm 23 with me. Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. It's like a prayer book of the Bible, a worship. It's like a hymnal of the Bible. I'm going to show you how I do this through Psalm 23. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. 
the Lord is my shepherd. And I pause. What comes to mind? Okay. Uh, I ask that you'd shepherd Shelby, my wife. I ask that you'd shepherd Shelby today. Uh, you know, she's, she's going through. and I ask that you would just, you would just shepherd her. Okay. Uh, what else comes to mind? Uh, my, my friend is going through this problem right now. I just ask that you shepherd him through that. I shall not want. And, and nothing else comes to mind? Okay, move on. I shall not want. All right. Um, and this is not a real example, but I wouldn't use a real negative example about my wife because I'm not an idiot. I shall not want. Okay. Well, you, you know, Shelby is really struggling with just materialism right now. And, and there's so much that, that she wants. And, and she just needs you to fill her, Lord. Just... Be your shepherd that be so good to her that, that she shouldn't she won't even want. She'll be satisfied in you. And I go and I go on and on and on and on. Let's say you come up to he makes me lie down in green pastures. Nothing comes to mind. Just skip it. The point is not to, you know, prepare to preach Psalm twenty three. What you're doing is you're using Psalm twenty three as a guide for your prayer. And this is historical in Acts chapter four, the apostles pray. And guess what they pray? Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where that's, where's that from? Psalm 22. This was the historical method of, of Jesus and the apostles and the early church and even before the early church. So this gives new, fresh language. Do you see this? Bless, bless my wife. Okay, bless my wife. Becomes shepherd my wife. I shall not want. Fill her, satisfy her today. Not only does it give me new fresh language for the things I'm already praying, but it also helps me pray for things I never thought to pray for. You know, you kind of think, when you have a child, you think, how am I going to teach this human being how to speak? I didn't have to. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor back in the 30s, said. He said, the child learns to speak because the parent speaks to the child. We learn to speak to God because God speaks to us. So not only does praying through the Psalms uh, give me fresh language to, to pray the things that I'm already regularly praying about, but it also helps me learn to pray better. So as I'm praying through the Psalms, I'm praying more and more for justice for the poor than I ever have, and more consistently than I ever have. I'm praying against the temptations of gossip and slander more than I ever have because those themes come up so much through the Psalms. So I learn to speak to God by hearing him speak to me. And then sometimes I'll, I'll be like uh, in a place like Psalm 10. It's like, God, why are you so far off? And I think, man, that's kind of a bad way to start the morning. I was in a good mood. I, I don't empathize with those feelings at all. Maybe I should skip it. And then I say, no, Spirit, help me pray. And then the Spirit brings to mind my friend David, whose mom has early onset uh, dementia. And I, and I realize that I, I have not, he hasn't really brought it up much, and I haven't really tried to bring it out of him much. I haven't really tried to talk to him about it much. And through that psalm and praying for him, I realize he's hurting. Now I'm a lot better friend to David in that area. Find a psalm. Open up. Find a psalm. Any psalm. There's 150. Now, I'm, 
I'm going to give you not as many minutes as I thought, but I'm going to give you just 90 seconds to do this, okay? Now, open up, find a psalm, and I'm just going to tell you, in the mornings, this is what my Bible reading looks like in the morning. I start the morning, I get my phone, I set it to 15 minutes. I put it out of sight, and I'm praying through a psalm. I just go, I start in Psalm 1, I end in Psalm 150, and I go over and over and over and over. And then after that, I do the Old Testament, uh, we'll read through a book of the Old Testament for 15 minutes, um, and then when I'm being a really good Christian, I do it with the New Testament. Um, now, don't worry about rushing it. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. I was in it for about 23 times of prayer. There's no rush. I really don't care. I'm just using this as a guide to help me pray. pray. Once I get to 150, I'm going to start back at one again. So there's, there's no rush in this. Now, I'm going to give you 90 seconds to just pray through a psalm. Read a line, pray through it. Now, this isn't group prayer. So just, you know, give each other space. This is God's gift to you. This is God's gift to you, prayer. It's not something to begrudgingly check off a box, but to receive with childlike joy. And especially if your prayer time's the morning, you're not gonna pray, you're not typically gonna wake up and be like, yes, prayer. Because no one does that when they wake up. Don't feel guilty about it. Instead, come to the scripture. And ask, God, would you help me pray this morning? And more often than not, with this method, I feel so weird, like, paddling a method like this. But it it has been so helpful to me. And if it's not helpful to you, that's okay. This has been so helpful to me. More often than not, not that long into the prayer, my mind is engaged. Before it was wandering, I would think about, okay, I'm praying, but now I'm thinking about anything else. It, It could be like, well... It could be something as good as a sermon, or it could be something like a video game. You know, it's just like anything other than prayer is what I'm thinking about. But this engages my mind. It's been so helpful for me. So try it at home. And if you miss a day, come back the next day. It's not a chore, it's a gift. Let's go to Romans 8 and wrap up. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So you think, why do the third reason why I didn't pray, the first was shame, the second was boring, the third is I don't realize how much I need prayer. And if you think, you know, all I got to do today, I got to do what I do every day. Okay, got to get the kids off to school. Got to go to work. Got to come back. Got to do whatever. I mean, maybe I feel bad for saying this, but I don't need prayer. Your purpose is so much bigger than that. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, that's all who are called to him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your purpose, the purpose of your existence is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You need prayer. The purpose of your existence is to be conformed to the image of God's eternal son, Jesus. And we're so far from that. And so we pray, 
all those years when I was saying, help me, help me, help me, help me, I think the Spirit was perfecting that to God and saying, what do you keep working in him, committed to him, keep, keep working to make him in the image of your son. We're going to get back what we lost someday, and that's to be perfect image bearers of God. So pray. Ask God to help you.